Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Books in Psychology. I am Eugenio Duarte, your host, as well as a psychoanalyst and clinical psychologist in Miami. Today, we venture a little outside the borders of psychology proper to an adjacent field and one which I almost studied, and that is the law. We're doing so in order to discuss the legal as well as the psychological complexities of a topic that's very important to me personally, and I'm sure to many of my listeners, which is same-sex marriage. I cannot think of a better person with whom to have this discussion than today's guest, lawyer and author Elizabeth Schwartz. Elizabeth has been practicing law since 1997 and is a nationally recognized advocate for the legal rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender, the transgender community. While her Miami-based firm works with all clients in matters of family formation and dissolution, estate planning and probate, she has been on the forefront of providing crucial legal protections for LGBTQ plus families before and since the arrival of marriage equality, including name and gender markers for trans and non-binary individuals. She lectures locally, nationally, and internationally about critical topics, including the impact of nationwide marriage equality and the continued importance of LGBT couples protecting their loved ones through estate planning, step-parent, and second-parent adoption. She focuses her practice in family formation and dissolution and handled the first first divorce for same-sex couple in Florida. She is the author of the book, Before I Do, A Legal Guide to Marriage, Gay and Otherwise, published by the New Press in 2016. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eugenio. Thanks for having me. I want to start by acknowledging that you published your book in 2016, shortly after our achievement of nationwide marriage equality the year before. Tell us what this book is about and what prompted you to write it at that time. So I was asked to write it by the woman who became my editor. She is uh, Julie Enzer, who's a badass. And she was not only uh, an editor at the New Press, the fabulous nonprofit social justice uh, publishing house that uh, published my book, but she also uh, is an academic and was teaching, I think at the time at the University of Maryland, the Terps. And she was kind of freaked out that these little queer kids would come bouncing down to her podium on Fridays and they'd be like, we're going to go get married this weekend, like kind of because we can't. And she was like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, there's there's rights that come with marriage. This isn't just like a fun fist in the air thing to do. And she thought we need somebody to write really a legal guide to what marriage means. So these kids don't just jump into marriage. And so she asked a colleague of hers, uh, uh, Martha Ertman, uh, who is also teaching at the University of Maryland. And Martha and I had just given a, uh, a presentation together. This was in 2015. And it was sort of like a beyond marriage conversation. It was, uh, it was up in Tallahassee, Florida uh, State University. And, um, and my mantra was then, and it is now, kind of look before you leap. And just because you have the right to marriage doesn't mean you, you need to get married. And just please understand what rights marriage brings and doesn't bring. And so that was kind of already the drum I was beating anyway. Just be, be, be smart about it. Uh, and and so I was asked to 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 take on this project to write this book and and I've been I've been kind of ruminating about some of these issues anyway because in my law practice really from the very first 
uh, recognitions of LGBTQ relationships from domestic partnerships and civil unions and registered domestic partnerships and reciprocal, you know, all, all these different reciprocal benefits are all from the beginning of any kind of status. I was seeing, understandably, because of all of the pent up demand, I was seeing clients kind of jumping in to these unions with maybe thinking that they mean more or less than they actually did. So I'd been thinking about these issues a lot, and I was grateful that we had the nationwide uh, marriage equality issue settled uh, so then I could write my book in, at a time post-nationwide marriage equality when it would be, as we say, evergreen. So the... the it, so it is what it is. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You, you make the point that people have misconceptions about what rights marriage does and does not afford. What in your experience are some of the most common misconceptions? So, so I was fortunate to work with uh, the National Center for Lesbian Rights, which is a 45-year-old LGBTQ national legal organization, nonprofit, uh, and Equality Florida, which is our statewide local LGBTQ rights organization. I was very fortunate to serve as their local counsel for uh, their challenge to Florida's ban on marriage equality. And so when we were looking for plaintiffs, uh, it, it's sort of a, it's sort of this perverse kind of central casting. You know, you got to find plaintiffs that are uh, the perfect mix of, of diverse and they have those skeletons in the closet and they've got great stories and you want mothers and fathers and grandparents and, and every race and every age and veterans. Anyway, so we were kind of doing our casting call uh, for plaintiffs. And the way that we did that was we, Equality Florida, put out a, a blast saying like, if you think that, like, tell us why you want to get married, essentially. And so people would 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 flood uh, the, the the lines and the, the emails with their with what they the reasons they wanted to get married. And so I was charged with going through the it was thousands and thousands of of LGBTQ. Uh, couples in Florida and their stories, and of course, so many of them were so moving, and 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 many of them were like making me want to pull my hair out because people would say, for example, I want to marry my wife so that I could have, I want to marry my girlfriend so that I will have parental rights to her child. No, you would still have to adopt her child. You don't get parental rights automatically. Um, so that's a common misconception that I saw a lot is that you would automatically get parental rights. Um, another common misconception, and, and you mentioned that I do a lot of estate planning and that's, that's what I've, what was, what was always my thing because before we could ever legitimize our relationships, all we could do was make each other our beneficiaries, you know, make my healthcare decisions if I can't communicate for myself, et cetera. So of course we do durable powers of attorney. A durable power of attorney is is me giving the person, which is called the attorney in fact, the person I sign the power of attorney for in favor of, giving my attorney in fact the right to do like everything for me short of vote, right? Like uh, create a trust, uh, uh, move my money around if you have to, apply for Medicaid for me. So of course, heterosexual people need to use those too. I mean, there's estate planners that are that work for straight people all the time. So, but what I would hear people would say is, oh, I wish I could get married so I don't have to do estate plan. I don't have to pay for a power of attorney. And, and I would always get people who 
even after they're married, or they, they would sign their estate planning documents. They say, oh, I can't wait till I get married. So I have to do this anymore. And it's like, well, you do you think that you have the right to like sign your husband's name because you're married? No, there still are powers that you have to enumerate in a specific document. You don't magically get those powers by, vir by virtue of your marriage. And then I think a lot of the other misconceptions that people have have to do with kind of what happens on divorce. People will say like, oh, well, but the house was in my name before we got married. Right. But there's there's still passive appreciation to that house. So the home that you and your husband um, live in that was in your name before the marriage that let's say you paid. Well, this is the Miami market. So let's say you paid five hundred thousand dollars for that house. Uh, and let's say that that's what it was worth when you got married. And let's say that you're divorcing and the house is now worth 1.5, which is very, you know, uh, possible in the real estate market in, in Florida. Right. So that that then a lot of people don't realize that that one million dollar of appreciation and value in the life of the relationship that he had nothing to do with your husband just living there and being married to you, that that's an asset of the marriage. That million dollars of enhanced value is divided equally. So absent a prenuptial agreement that would modify that default in the law, that's that's how that goes. So, you know, just things like that. I would hear, I wrote about it in the book about this client who, you know, thought it'd be fun to marry his husband. They, they went to New York. It was before we had marriage equality here in South Florida, in Florida, uh, January 6, 2015. So they went uh, before that to New York. They're like, they took in a show. They're like, oh, let's go get married. They get married. They come home. They split up several years later. And my God, and I was like, all right, I'm asking him the questions. Okay, well, what was your retirement account? What was the value when you got married? And what's the value now? And he's like, he literally said to me, no, 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 I didn't mean it to be that kind of marriage. Like, there's only one kind of marriage, baby. And it's like the legal marriage. So you, you, sorry, but you gave away that. So those are some of the misconceptions. And, and I don't fault us for not having some inherent knowledge of that. You and I are roughly the same age. I don't think either of us grew up thinking that we were going to have the freedom to marry in our lifetime. So I will just say personally for myself, I didn't like obsess on what all on these issues. It kind of almost took me in a sense by surprise. So I think yeah, we got to learn these things. Yeah, absolutely. I, that goes to what was going to be my next question, which is, do you think that one of the reasons why queer people may be, or, or do you find that queer clients are a little bit less informed about marriage, how marriage works? And so do you think that's because we didn't have access to it for so long? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess I sort of do, right? I mean, I think we didn't have access and we didn't have I think for many of us, we didn't have even the notion of access. But but one thing that was interesting as I as I was writing this book, I mean, there was so much I learned that it's so much learning what I know and what I don't know. And as I would talk to, I, I wrote a lot of this in the Berkshires in the mountains of Western Massachusetts in the summers with my my parents, my mom, my dad of blessed memory passed away um, uh, eight years ago, uh, so he didn't get to see the book. Um, uh, be born, although I dedicated it to him and my wife. Uh, but uh, but my mom, all my mom's friends in the Berkshires, I would talk to them about this and talk to them about marriage. And they they they, I learned so many interesting things from from them 
so much that, that they didn't know. And I realized that that ignorance about marriage is not the exclusive province of the LGBT community. So that's why the, the it was intended to be a legal guide for LGBTQ people, but that's why I added like the end otherwise, because I heard stories from some of these friends who were like, we went, somebody was saying, oh, we had the rabbi come over to do our wedding. We didn't know we needed to get a marriage license. We didn't even know. So I wrote that in there like, oh, right, of course. Why would you know that? Like, cause so, so there've been, of course, plenty of Britney Spears, 55 hour marriages where, you know, there's just was not, not as much, intention. Uh, uh, so I, I don't think it's just us, but I do think it's in a sense sort of extra us uh, that we, we didn't really think that this was uh, feasible. Uh, and, and that uh, I think we, we also, some of us really did jump in. There was just, there was so much pent up demand that I think we just were so excited to do it uh, that, and, and many of us, you know, of course, been together so long, right? Like so many, I mean, that's, I think why our divorce rates are a little lower. Uh, because for many of us, we've been, we've just been together for decades before we got married. So I think over time, the divorce rates will probably even out. But, you know, at least last time I checked, LGBTQ couples have slightly lower divorce rates because we've been together so long. And I think most folks felt like, we're good. Let's get married. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, so, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I, I want to get into some of the content of the book. You talk about the three big Ds. Mm. Uh and they are, and these are things that couples should discuss before getting married. And they are death, disability, and divorce. Why do you think that these topics are particularly important? I think that, that they are absolutely the topics that people avoid. And I think when you are not on the same page about something, it can be devastating. Uh, add that to the to the D's, right? <laughs> Devastating. So I, I think it's really important. I, I just think communication is so important. And and I and I'll say that I think the as I went on this book tour, people would talk all the time. Their favorite was page twenty two, page twenty two, and that was that. That's the list of questions. I'm glad you brought it up. I was going to ask you about it. People love the questions, and it's so. They, and I still people will message me all the time, and and. People will say, not only do I love the questions, but I love that you that you suggested that we ask them and ask them again, right? So, and, and these are all, by the way, absolute. These are not fictional or create. These are like the products of what I've learned sitting around conference tables for 25 years, you know, with our community. P- things that sometimes people didn't know until they sat together in my office. Things like, do you believe in monogamy? Do you want kids or not? How, how have your past relationships ended? Have you ever committed a crime? I've had people who found out in my office that like their partner had been in jail, had been to jail or was HIV positive or plans to retire in a whole other place, you know, or doesn't want their, their, doesn't want their assets to go only to the partner, but also wants to, has charitable intentions or wants to provide for the, the ex- uh, exes, uh, kids that they sort of co-parented as well. So, you know, have you ever been sued? I mean, these are questions that I think are really important. I mean, what's your annual income? I've had people who, who don't actually know that. Oh, well, I understand if you're like not just a W-2 employee and things can fluctuate, but I think you want to know what you're getting yourself into. And this, by the way, isn't just 
it went before you questions to ask before you get married. These are questions to ask really, I think, before you shack up with someone, like before you get too deep in a relationship. I think these are some important uh, points to suss out. Uh, and, and, and you might think that these things are unnecessary to ask or silly, but, uh, you know, I, I think that that really some of the healthiest couples that I've worked with have been ones who have good open lines of communication, even about difficult, challenging conversations. And, and, and that's why I think the three big D's, death, divorce and disability are so challenging because you not only do you have to talk about what would happen in the event of, of, of those unfortunate events, but you also have to talk about plan B's and plan C's, right? Oh, I want to give everything to my partner. I want my partner to make medical decisions for me. Well, what happens if you and your partner are in a common accident? What's your plan B? That could sometimes be, what do you mean you'd want your brother to come in and help? Your brother is a Trump supporter, whatever, you know what I mean? Like, so these are important conversations, I think, you know, for couples to make sure that they have. Um so yeah, let me, let me ask you a follow-up question about that though, because I, I'm thinking, and, and tell me if your experience bears this out, but some of this difficulty might be a function of maturity. You know, a lot of people who get married get married young. And when they're young, they're thinking that these things don't really apply to them. They feel far off. And do you have any advice for young people who are listening? And who think they'll they'll deal with this later? Uh, any advice on how they can bring up and think about these topics now, and and how to talk about them in a way that feels safe? So, I mean, my, I guess my my first instinct or my first sort of thought is to say is sort of a flip one, which is to say, don't get married so young. Like, I love how many folks in our community. I'm, I'm looking at my, I'm looking at the page of my book to be reminded how old my wife and I, how long we were together when we got married. Cause I don't remember, but we were together like 11 or 12 years before we got married. And, um, and so I, I, I love that. Like, I think that most of us, how long were you and your partner together before you got married? About a year and a half. Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. Okay. So we yeah, have flip side. Yeah. So, but, so I think that, 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 so then not to generalize, but certainly quite a few in our community were together for a long, long time, but probably you guys were together um, as adults, right? Like you, you got together as adults. I think some of I mean, us- I was in my late twenties. Ah, okay. Interesting. So do you, did you have some of these hard, tough conversations before? I mean, you're a shrink. Hopefully you're- <laughs> I, I, you know, some, some of them, some of them, yes, but I'll admit, I'll admit some of them, no, because, you know, I, I can, it's not hard for me to remember myself in my late, late twenties, just not even thinking about these things. I may not have even had a retirement account. Um, I may not have had much money in my bank account and, you know, some, some things I knew about and, and, and my partner knew about me. So, so it's easy for me to imagine young people now not only feeling like it's it's a far away thing they don't need to worry about, but it's also kind of nerve wracking. It um, it's a big dose of adulthood. It is. It is. And, and and I appreciate that a lot of folks think, oh, I don't need a prenup because we have nothing. But the problem is, is that the, the, I mean, the prenup is intended to govern for an extended period of time. And 
theoretically you will amass assets, right? And liabilities, right? A lot of a lot of young people will do prenups to protect their their partner from from their debts, right? Student loans, etc. So so I think I'm a big believer in prenups for all kinds of reasons, especially when you're younger. Uh, but but also too when you're older because you've built up assets, maybe you have kids from prior relationships. I mean, I think it's you, when you get married, you're you're entering into a contract with the state. So it, I think if you don't want the state to be governing how that relationship were to end, heaven forbid, if you want to be in control of your destiny, then I think you would want to modify that with some sort of a contract, uh, a prenup or a postnuptial agreement. But but yeah, I think that you're right, Anya, that it's that especially for younger folks, that it's really important to try to talk about these things. That's why I was really grateful that you wanted to have this conversation because I really believe in working in partnership with with my mental health professional friends and doing premarital counseling for folks and having conversations about these things in advance. Uh, I think it should be like required. You know, they do have these premarital courses, but I think that you should like have to talk to a lawyer and you should have to talk to a therapist uh, because I, I, you know, I think these things are critical to to process uh, and, and, and it should be the norm so that it isn't nerve wracking, so that it doesn't feel non-romantic, um, so that it's just like the thing that we do. That's part of, you know, just part of reality. On that point, one of the things that I appreciate appreciate about your book is that you do tackle the question: Well, should should you get married or should you not? It's it's not a book that is biased towards the point of view that one ought to get married. Um, in your opinion or in your experience, what are some of the reasons why people shouldn't get married or should at least think twice about it? Thanks for asking that. That's a great question because I, I'm. I was always the biggest believer that marriage was this bougie institution and we should just decouple all of the rights from marriage so that people can can have be financially and emotionally interdependent without the need to have the state involved, right? And, and I was always the biggest believer that, for example, why shouldn't an aunt raising her nephew be able to provide him with health insurance. You know, what, why do we have to have these, all these rights and responsibilities tied to marriage, right? And, and, and then of course in Miami, we have all kinds of, of family constellations. So, so I, I was the biggest believer that marriage isn't really the answer. The problem is, is that unfortunately there are those 1500 rights and responsibilities on a federal and a state level that that are the the goodies as we say that come along with marriage but uh it's also important for people to really ask questions and think through there there absolutely are massive reasons why marriage might not be for you those automatic rights on death and on divorce uh could be a problem you may not be excited about that uh certainly if you're on means-based benefits meaning that you have like benefits that you get from the government that are based on your income and your assets. And if you get married and then your, those assets, uh, your household income changes, you could lose those benefits. Um, the very first thing I tell people to do when they say, we're trying to decide should we get married or not, is I say, talk to the CPA, have them run the numbers because there is a marriage penalty. There's also a marriage bonus. It depends on your income relative to one another. Uh, it could be a lovely 
deduction. You could be in a lower tax bracket for getting married, or you could be devastated to find out how that you end up with this marriage penalty and you have to pay more tax. Uh, folks who have all kinds of different benefits, like for example, military benefits. I've seen folks who lose their pension, uh, excuse me, their, their prescription drug benefit because they got married. Uh, they might, you might lose your social security uh, benefits if you are married to someone else and you're getting their benefits and then you remarry. Um, before age 60, you could lose those social security benefits that you're getting. Uh, you know, there's so many different types of reasons. And then, of course, there some people just don't believe in the institution of marriage and they feel like we've been able, you know, as queer people, we've been able to just find, commit to one another for all these years and we don't need a piece of paper to tell us to do it. And I don't want to take on your potential liabilities, et cetera. Uh, so there's, there's, there's all manner of reasons, and I've got like a whole chapter of do I do I do or do I don't do or something like that um, that I, that I think kind of goes through goes through it, uh, and I think helps you with the different kind of weighing uh, what what might what factors might be. Yeah, do I do I do do you I do or don't you? Uh, yeah, so uh, kind of walks you through some of that, which I think is really important. Again, you know, Medicare, Medicaid. Social SSI, uh, you know, there's all, all kinds of uh, of issues to think about for 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 different folks. Yeah. And, and what I think people will appreciate is that for people who don't want to get married but still want to recognize their union in some official way, you have another chapter on alternatives that they might consider. What what are those alternatives? Well, absolutely, everyone needs estate planning. There's just there's no question about that. Everyone needs a will. Living will, healthcare surrogate, power of attorney. Like in other words, you need to say what happens to you in the event of death, in the event of divorce, in the event of disability. That's really, really important. And you know, there's certainly all manner of of statuses uh, in, still in different jurisdictions uh, that exist. Uh, California still has uh, RDPs, registered domestic partnerships, where you can still provide uh, quite a bit of support for one another. But there, I mean, of course, there is no substitute for marriage, right? I mean, we know that we're very much hoping that the state, uh, excuse me, that the Senate uh, uh, passes uh, what the House has already passed, uh, which is the Respect for Marriage Act to codify uh, Obergefell into law so that we always have the right to marry and it doesn't get delegated to the states because we know that states like Florida would love to wipe out our marriage equality, uh, no matter what, and, and I mean, I don't, I don't see that happening. The happening that they would, that they would. I, I do see the Senate passing it. I'm very optimistic that Republicans are going to do the right thing, but I, I don't see that they would go after marriage equality, especially retroactively. Um, anything's possible. I'm still reeling from the overturn of Roe v. Wade after almost 50 years of it being settled law. Um, but I just my, I just go to the logistics of things. I just think that it would be a nightmare to have to go back to how we were living for so many years where you would go across state lines and you were a legal stranger here and then you're civilly union there and then your domestic partner there and then you're married there and then you're a legal stranger there. I just think that would be that's like an administrative headache. Uh, that I, I don't certainly I don't think the business community uh, would be in support of. So uh, so for what it's worth, uh, I don't think that that's uh, that that's on the horizon. But folks absolutely need to take every possible step to protect themselves, uh, to do their estate planning, 
to make sure that your your property is titled the way you want it to be titled. Uh, you know, if you if there are contracts that you want to put in place that would say, here's what would happen if we would break up, right? Because plenty of couples own their property, joint tenants with rights of survivorship, let's say. And let's say maybe one of you like put in the first $100,000 down payment from you selling your prior place and you just expect you would get that back. Unfortunately, without a contract, you know, without an agreement otherwise, that's considered a gift to your partner. So you would want to have some kind of an agreement in place to memorialize um, if you were to have a, a different split other than 50-50. So, you know, so couples that are not married should make sure that those types of agreements are put in place. And I'm happy to to be a resource for folks wherever you live. I probably know a lawyer there. It's a good idea to talk to someone. Um, you, We were talking before we chatted about like, Excuse me, before we started recording and we were chatting and you were saying like, kind of, is there anything you would do differently now or a new, a new edition? What would you do uh, for your book? And the content really, it, it wouldn't change much. I mean, it, marriage is not changed as an institution. The law hasn't changed, you know, God willing, knock on wood, it won't. Uh, but, but I do sort of lament the title because it's before I do. And I think a lot of folks, you know, when I was on book tour, they'd say, oh, I don't have to read that because we're already married. And so the framing, the title makes it sound like you only need to know these things before you get married. And I wish the title was like before or after I do or whatever, you know, because there's plenty in here, again, about estate planning, about divorce, about all these different other tax implications, et cetera, psychological uh, implications uh, that I think people still can benefit from. So that that's sort of my one regret is uh, is that title. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, let's let's go there because I was thinking the same thing. I, I was wondering, you know, what what advice do you have, or even what experience do you have with couples who are already married? Maybe they've been married for for quite a while but they start to deal with some of these questions and some of the, these issues already in the marriage. How, how do you help them? How do those conversations tend to go? And what advice do you have for people who now in their marriages have to start some of these conversations? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I have to say, I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you, but I, I really, I really send them to the therapist. You know, I, I, the problem is while we've come so far in terms of, removing the stigma of availing yourself of a mental health professional, we're not there yet, right? I think we can all agree that people feel like if they're sent to the therapist, you know, in air quotes, that there's something wrong, that they're bad, that they're crazy, that they're messed up. And so they kind of go to the lawyer instead. And I'm, I am a mediator, so they'll come to me sometimes for conflict resolution when really they need to be seeing the therapist. So I'm like a, a constant commercial for, you know, there's no shame in seeing the therapist and unexamined life is not worth living. It's okay to talk about these things. And I, and I feel like, like the great thing about a therapist is that you can be that neutral facilitator, kind of hearing the things that are between the lines that are not being said, right? You can help them with tools, uh, so that they can mirror to one another what their 
what are you hearing? What are you saying? And what are you hearing? I think that's really important. And, and yeah, I'm often able to, to help resolve. Like I, I always think of it as like, I can help resolve some of the financial issues, you know, try to help them sort out what's fair, maybe with respect to kids, stuff like that. But that's kind of, you need to have the, the, the underbrush cleared away first, the emotionally, having the language to communicate with one another, uh, I think is really critical. So I, I, I always, I, people come to me first because it's somehow not seen, as I say, it's not seen as some shameful thing. And I'm like, baby, we got to bring the therapy. I'm, I'm out of my lane here. You know? And I, I try to encourage uh, folks to, to, uh, to work with a good therapist who can help them kind of tease out those issues. And, and I'm a big believer in that kind of holistic team building approach, teamwork approach. Well, you know, I appreciate, of course, the, the promotion, but I, I got to tell you, I can, I, I can imagine and sometimes know of scenario scenarios where it's the opposite, where, you know, there, there might be a comfort in coming to the therapist where people expect that there's not going to be judgment. There's not going to be a hard answer. Whereas going to the lawyer, and maybe I'm projecting a little bit of myself here, to me at least, tends to be scary because there's something about consulting a lawyer, I think in my mind sometimes, and maybe the, the minds of certain people, where it feels like there are going to be hard answers and there are going to be laws and you're about to you're about to find out stuff that you may not want to find out and you might find out that you're in trouble or, or that you've done something wrong. And, and I, I know of people who avoid seeing a lawyer for that reason. And I, I, I wonder if you ever encounter that, people who are scared to talk to you, scared to ask certain questions or get the answers to certain questions. Absolutely. I, I've had clients who say when they come in, well, back when we saw people in person, they'd say, I feel like I'm being called into the principal's office when I come to see you, you know? And, and it's true. I mean, my motto is always, I tell clients not what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. And that can be difficult for folks. Right. And so absolutely. I mean, I've had people who, who are, they know they didn't do the right thing. They know they didn't adopt the child and they should have adopted the child. And now they're breaking up and they're going to lose parental rights because they never did what they needed to do. And they didn't want to, they didn't want to call in the lawyer because the partner was like, no, you could trust me, baby. You could trust me, baby. I would never deny your parental rights. And then that terrible case of Alzheimer's that comes along when folks are divorcing. And it's like, what are you talking about? I never said that you're the worst parent ever. So absolutely, uh, you're, you're, you're correct that people do put off coming to the lawyer. They don't want to hear what they need to do. They don't want to hear, quite frankly, what it's going to cost uh, to avail themselves of, of perhaps some of the protections and the benefits that they could avail themselves of, uh, the time it's going to take. They don't feel like dealing with all of that and just having those tough conversations about death, divorce, and disability. Uh, that's no fun. No one wants to face mortality that way. So yeah, you're right. One of the things that I appreciate about your book as well is all the, you have all these cameos, you call them cameos, which is experts in different parts of the field who offer their own point of view on the topics that you cover. One of the ones that that jumped out to me, and I know it jumped out to you, is the one by Matt, Michael Acton Coles on self-understanding. Do you do you want to tell us who he is and and how uh, what he contributes to your book? 
Absolutely. Thank you for asking. Um, Michael, uh, who, who actually has done, had a name change since then, so he's Michael Padraig Acton. Um, he is a therapist uh, and he writes a fantastic cameo, uh, really kind of delving into what marriage means for us uh, on, a, on an emotional uh, uh, level. And he talks about some of our, our self-hating, you know, internalized homophobia and the ways in which marriage can be very validating for us. And also the way in which sometimes it can alienate us from our families, from our faith traditions, uh, you know, the, the, the emotional role that marriage plays for us as a communal event, standing up in front of our community and how uh, important uh, that that can be for us. I, I loved Michael's cameo. Uh, I love the way he talked about how, for example, domestic violence is just as prevalent in the LGBTQ community uh, as, as otherwise. And that, of course, it's becoming more of a conversation as we come out more. It's, it's just as widespread but but now it, but it looks like there's more domestic violence in our community because we're we're coming out we're talking about it we feel confident to talk about it and I I loved his cam I loved all the cameos you know one of the things that I learned as I was asked to write this book is like again you know what I know and what I don't know so I had you know a, a great cameo from a tax professional from a military lawyer uh, from from other family lawyers who uh, you know have different perspectives themselves. On, on marriage, you know, from a from a guy uh, who who's been with his partner, uh, who's a who's also a mediator and a family lawyer, who's been with his partner for I think they're like thirty or forty years together, and why they chose not to get married, and 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 I have it on good authority that they were they're still not married, uh, and and so you know, so I, I was really proud of these. It was it was tough to be the cat herder of all these folks and wrangle them, but I think it really added a nice dimension. Uh, to the book of other people's input. And it wasn't just uh, me talking on and on like I'm doing now. <laughs> so Liz, it's actually been a real pleasure talking to you. We're almost out of time, but before you go, what are you working on now? What do you have coming up next? Well, I'm singularly focused on these midterm elections and I'm uh, working on the don't say LGBTQ litigation, don't say gay uh, law here in Florida. So I'm very focused uh, on that litigation as well. And I'm just right now really focused on trying to protect our transgender, gender non-binary siblings here in Florida. They are really under attack, just next level. So I've been doing a lot of uh, uh, trying to do education, especially of the judges. Uh, judicial education is really, really important. And we in Florida, uh, need to educate our judges that they have not only the right, but really the obligation to grant name and gender marker changes for transgender and gender non-binary folks. So I've been really trying to focus uh, very much on that. Um, and, I'm, I'm, and I'm also excited because I'm headed up to New York next week for the big SAGE event. SAGE is a 45-year-old uh, uh, national LGBTQ nonprofit focusing on LGBTQ elders, it's advocacy and services for LGBTQ elders. So we have a big gala uh, at Cipriani Wall Street, uh, October 17th, and then a fun event down here in Miami, uh, February 4th, which sweetly enough is honoring me. So everyone should come to that. <laughs> that, that sounds like fun. You do such important work. And 
before we go, you've mentioned that people might be able to contact you if they need to talk to someone or need to find resources. What is the best way for people to reach you? So you know, I, I, I'm always available on email, Liz at ElizabethSchwartz.com. So L-I-Z at, and then my full name, E-L-I-Z-A-B-E-T-H-S-C-H-W-A-R-T-Z. And you could also DM me on Twitter uh, or Instagram. My Twitter handle is Schwartz Outlaw, just like it sounds. And my Instagram is Elizabeth with an F, my middle name, Elizabeth F. Schwartz. Uh, so folks can hit me up any which way. I'm a member of the National LGBTQ Bar Association's Family Law Institute, and we have a really great like directory of LGBTQ competent attorneys all around the country. So if you you know you can either Google that uh, National LGBTQ Bar Association uh, Family Law Institute and find the directory, or you can ask me and I'll send you the link. Uh, and of course, anywhere in the state of Florida, I'm happy to help you. Uh, or happy to direct you on. And uh, just thank you so much for this conversation. It's been it's been really great. Thank you too. And I want to remind my listeners that I have been speaking to Elizabeth Schwartz, attorney and author of the book, Before I Do, A Legal Guide to Marriage, Gay and Otherwise. Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Thank you.